Hello, and welcome to Barks Remarks, the podcast where we talk about the stories from the legendary Carl Barks, creator of Scrooge McDuck and writer and artist of the greatest Donald and Scrooge comics of all time. Join us as we explore his longer adventure stories in their chronological publishing order. We'll talk about what makes them so enduring, their historical context, and how well they hold up today. So get out your reprint and get ready to enjoy our remarks. Hello and welcome to Bark's Remarks. I'm Mark Severino, a grown man who loves duck comics. Um, I've got a couple of other grown people on with me as guests for uh, you guys. This is this is a pretty special episode because it's it's kind of a, a real gangs all here moment. I have people that I go way back with, one of whom is a returning guest, Ryan Bailey. Welcome back. Hello. Thank you. And and then another is a new guest, Becky Barnes, who is is a longtime Barks fan, and and I've known her for uh, I guess more years than we should specify. Welcome to you, Becky. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Um, and and this is this is great. This is an opportunity to talk about a really interesting Bark story, the City of Golden Roofs. I don't know that it's one of the Duckman's all-time best, but I think this might be a personal one for you and me, Becky, because I, I think we probably read this early on, and, and most Barks fans have these stories, I think, where if you read it early enough, it just it just becomes a little bit formative to you. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, it's it's it was a really fun um, but interesting, uh, interesting psychological experiment to reread something that you know looms so large in my memory as a child, and then reading again as a, <clears throat> dare I say, uh, adult. Um, and needless to say, I'm sure we'll get into this, but a few things hit a little different at this uh, advanced age. They they really do hit differently, and I, I was struck personally by this story both how how much of a throwback it feels and how modern some aspects of it felt to me so definitely some some interesting stuff to cover so so Ryan you're a recurring guest of mine who is not a Barks fan. I call you a newbie, but but you are a big comics fan, right? What what do you usually look for in a comic? Ooh, um I like I like doing something new. Uh I mean it's, you know, it's kind of like any kind of storytelling. I like uh when they have something to say, you know, there's some good themes, there's a good character arc, uh, maybe a couple surprises. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I think that sort of thing is satisfying. Yeah, excellent. And and so I've had you on for a, a pretty good number of these at this point. So um, we can check in with you how you think it compares to some other Bark stories um, and and so forth. And Becky, like like I'd mentioned, you are, you, I think you have a similar experience to me, right? You're, you're a fan from childhood. Um, you probably read a lot of these. I know you and I, I have vague memories of you and I chatting about it all those years ago, but it was a surprise to me to remember that you were a Barks fan and, and a delight. Tell me, how did you get into Barks? Um, maybe uh, give us a couple of your favorites. Well, um, you know, I really got into it from my dad. My dad grew up with these. And, you know, when I was growing up in the 80s, uh, they were republishing a lot of these. Um, and so it was, there's a little comic book shop near where I lived. It was sort of our weekend tradition to go and pick up the latest uh, the latest comics so I can remember these back as almost as far as I can you know I have memories um and you know we would 
my dad would would sit us on the couch and we would have family uh, family comic book night. So he would read the whole things aloud to us. And as I got older and, you know, when we, my brother and I learned to read, we would just spread them out on the floor. I'm sure you can picture this, you know, the way kids do just this spread them all out on the floor and just uh, lie down on our, our elbows and, and pour over them for hours. I, I've had had the exact same experience with, I'm sure, many of the same issues. Um, we would have been reading when the when the publishing company Gladstone was was putting them out. Um, Ryan, do you have the the same kind of like sprawling out on the floor with comics experience? No, not really. I read uh, a few of them as a kid. And by few, I mean, like less than 10 issues total, maybe um, as an actual kid. <laughs> and then, you know, as a teenager, and some of my some of my friends were kind of into, you know, whatever, you know, a couple mainstream things, a lot of indie things, you know, and so I would just borrow a collection from a friend, I'd read the mask or the tick or something, uh, or Batman or something like that. And then uh, it wasn't until probably like my mid 20s that I, I started, you know, my friend had a bunch of them digitally. And so I just read whatever I felt like and and got really into into the Marvel stuff and started reading a lot of that. And, and so like, yeah, it's odd, I think there's some irony in the fact that comics are intended for kids. I didn't really read them as kids. It wasn't really my thing very much, uh, except to dabble in, to, to connect to people. And then uh, as an adult, I go, oh, this is really great. This artwork is really great. And these stories are really interesting. <laughs> what what a weird thing to be a, a, a grown grown man obsessed with a comic book that's that's kind I'm of surely the only one i'm probably unique among among in the world right right <laughs> absolutely it's also interesting going through these digitally versus in print right it's like it's a different experience using a, a panel reader to advance i don't know if you ever do that to advance a panel at a time but um but it gives it gives some stories an interesting flow that way i think i i've never done that i've you know I, i'm used to just the the old school paper and, you know, while I understand these don't have a lot of value in mint condition, um, the ones that we have at home are certainly not. And, you know, you can tell which ones were the favorites because the, right. the cover is hanging on by the just by the very edge of that staple. Yeah. My, my copy of this story is from the day when I didn't know better and I would fold my comics over resulting in this spine kind of curling up. Um, but yeah, this one was well loved for me. I have I have Gladstone's uh, two, Uncle Scrooge number 213 with a really neat Don Yippis cover. Why don't we go ahead and talk about a little bit of the background of this story. City of Golden Roofs was published or at least had a cover date of December of 1957. So um, Becky, one of the interesting things about doing this series, this podcast, is that I, I didn't really have an appreciation when I was a kid of like the order of, of Bark's stories and kind of his progression. Um, but now I know that we're, we're, we're a little bit past his kind of quote golden age of comics, which most fans would identify as roughly between like 49 to 53 or 55, depending on how much you want to stretch it out. Um, so he's been at this for a while, right? Donald Duck finds pirate gold was was in in the forties, um, and and he's actually at a period where he seems to have had a little bit of like artistic maybe burnout because there are about four or five stories in a pretty short span 
where he lifted the plots of previous Duck comics that he did, and he gave them a, a totally new location, um, and he changed them over enough that it doesn't look like he's completely repeating himself, uh, but but there there you can definitely recognize it. So. I don't know if you read the other link that I sent you, um, Land of the Totem Poles, but but Ryan, I, I had your wife Sue on as a guest uh, mm -hmm. a year or so ago, and she covered that story with me. Um, and it is basically the plot of this. Again, you know, the ducks go go down, sail down the river in a in a wild area in an improbable salesman competition. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and he did that with several stories in 1957, but there are still some pretty great stories in that stretch. Um, this was in Uncle Scrooge number 20. Uh, it's 26 pages long, fairly long for his stories in this era. Um, and it's been reprinted a weirdly small number of times. Um, if you look, there's only five instances in the U.S. and only two of those are like monthly newsstand comics. So so this one might be a little bit under read, I'm guessing, by the community. Yeah, that's that's about, about all I've got for the background. Yeah, I mean, I think what's interesting about this one to me and maybe part of the reason that it, it resonated so much with me as a kid um, my mom's actually from Singapore. Um, so, you know, the that part of the world in Southeast Asia has always been somewhat familiar to me. And, you know, I think you you alluded earlier to sometimes there's this tension between, you know, the, the homage to these very real places and, um, you know, bridging into caricature. But it certainly appealed to me as a child as a sort of a recognizable uh, part of the world. Yeah, that's interesting. Because I think for me, it was appealing for sort of the opposite reason. Probably a lot of the readers found, um, really liked the quote, exotic places that Barks would cover. And and he covered them with this mix of real care, right? Like diving into his National Geographics for, um, for reference. But then it's also kind of mixed in with some of the like uh, hodgepodging of, of different cultural stuff that was very, we, we should I recognize that it was very common at the time. Um, part of my reason for doing this podcast is to kind of reconcile and process some of this stuff that I read as a kid. So I don't try to shy away from it. And I definitely invite you guys to comment on it. Um, but, but we acknowledge that, you know, this was very a very common type of depiction in, in 1957. So you guys, before we get into the story content itself, I'd always like to take a moment to pander to the international listeners. We, we pick out a few of the international titles and talk about them. Frequently, they're just exact translations, and that can be interesting too, but sometimes there's something a little bit interesting about them. So... I, I think I'll do the first one because it's a little bit of an odd situation. I was going to cover the title in Swedish, which is Ikampen om Kovan. Um, and when I when I initially plugged that into Google Translate, guys, it gave me, it provided the translation, in the battle for the cow. So, so I had to text with a couple of my Scandinavian guests. I, I didn't see anyone online who was properly from Swedish. So, so I, I texted a couple of my Norwegian guests, Ruben and Mikkel, um, and, and they were able to point me to the fact that it is most likely kind of a pun 
That means in the battle for the cabin or hut, um, but also that Hovan can be money as well. So I think there's kind of a neat little a neat little pun that they landed with there, um, which which seems to fit pretty well. How about it? Uh, Becky, can we go over to the other Scandinavian country? Oh, boy. Yeah, it looks like, what is this, Norwegian here? Yep. And it looks like beginner panit, which I believe it says is starting over, which it, that sounds like beginner. Isn't it a little overlap with English yeah. there? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it seems like a reasonable title. It must refer to Scrooge, like starting from scratch in the competition, is is my guess. But City of Golden Roofs is definitely more evocative of adventure. So, so maybe a weird choice. Um, yeah, Ryan, what I just about? Have to ask the question: Why would, you, why, why change it? You know, it, it doesn't seem like a particularly culturally unique title. What was going through the translator's mind there? I need to know. I've got questions. Yeah, it is. It is a little bit curious. Um, and and if you look in later in later reprints, they did go with the original title, which I think is Med To Toma Hender. I'm just guessing that that's an appropriate translation. Let's see if Google will make a liar of me. Translate. Well, now uh, I'm grateful no. for the uh, non-literal that... translation. <laughs> so that one is with two empty hands. Med oh, wow. Hender. Um, so it, it took a few reprints before uh, before they went with the original translation. Um, and Norway prides themselves, some of the Scandinavians pride themselves on like being Bark's purists. So they'll usually go with the English title these days. Mm. Like not even translated, just straight English. Wow. With yeah. two empty hands, that's so poetic. That's it really is. compelling. I like that. I know. I wonder if it's I wonder if it's a saying or, or an idiom in in the language. Um, all right, Ryan, that leaves you with uh, with Spain, Spanish, Spanish and Mexican Spanish. All right. The Spain uh, title was La Ciudad de los Tejados Dorados, which means the city of the golden roofs. <laughs> uh, and then uh, the Mexican uh, Spanish version was uh, just one word off. La uh, Ciudad just... de los Aleros Dorados. Right. Excellent. Yeah. So we've got we've got rooftops and eaves. Those were um, those were new words for me because I would have just known the word techos. Right. Me too. So excellent. Uh, Thank you, guys. Let's let's do it. Let's go in uh, and talk about this story itself. I'm going to be summarizing the main action. I won't I won't cover everything in too gruesome detail, but if there's something you want to highlight or a question you have, a comment, some art or dialogue you want to appreciate, feel free to chime in. So you guys, the the opening is is pretty interesting. Um one of the neat things about doing this podcast is that I've had a couple of like people involved in editorial, the editorial process of doing the comics and and someone told me that with every single story, Barks is is making sure to do some signaling, right, with his character. He has to give new readers a shorthand. So, so we do. We start out with this uh, splash panel, a half-page splash with Donald and Scrooge kind of just chatting in his money bin. Um, we get the idea that Scrooge is this over-the-top rich duck from the fact that he is literally raking his money around. 
And Donald um, is commenting to him how he, how he's lucky that he made his fortune in the quote old days when getting rich was easy. Um, and and it's basically it's going to devolve into the setup for the story, right? They're going to get embroiled in this argument about how he couldn't have done it, and and Donald, um, it, you know, with his modern ideas, he could start out on even foot with Scrooge and um, do just as well as he could. So, so this, this sort of like rabble uh, arguing sets up the, the contest of the story. It's, it's a really neat setup, right, Becky? Oh, it's hilarious. I mean, you can't help but read this and think, okay, boomer. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And, and I can't help read it and kind of think about like where the U.S. was in terms of, of kind of colonialism and extraction and, and the fact that in some ways Donald is, is right about this, right? Like the, the ways (laughs) people make money really really do change over the years and like you can't start a google now compared to um compared to the 1970s for example so yeah i I think i i was actually thinking that i was thinking i mean this is um you know scrooge is kind of a contemporary of like rockefeller and vanderbilt and you know all these robber barons or whatever (laughs) from like the early early 1900s turn of the century stuff and and that you know now in the 50s like yeah what do you do now like <laughs> you know the the funny thing maybe i'm getting off topic here but you can't look at this story and the the debate is set up as well could you make money the same way in in donald's day as you could in scrooge's day and yet you look at scrooge and when he's ostensibly starting over at every single point he is cheating he is cheating at every single point <laughs> and donald doesn't donald doesn't cheat and you know yeah. who comes out on top and somehow this is being you know juxtaposed as a generational difference when if you look at it a little closely it's kind of an ethical difference <laughs> yeah there's a lot going on here right cuz cuz we are i think we're supposed to feel sympathetic for scrooge but but by the same token, he is doing this like rampant cheating um, for comic effect. And, and then there's just some big ideas about like Scrooge in his history. He, he really did make it on his own. You know, that's that's a big part of his mythos. But could he do it these days? It, it, there's some big ideas, obviously, wrapped up in this. There are also, you guys, some big ideas about what it means to age gracefully, right? And when when someone is over the hill, um, 1957, this is really easy shorthand, right? Barks was literally born almost at the turn of the century in 1901. So it's easy to calculate his age. He's into his late 50s here. Um, he's still keeping up the same pace. Uh, we know that he's kind of copying from himself at this point. Like this story is literally an echo of a previous story he did. There's kind of this weird meta pilfering of his own ideas. So the fact that Scrooge is, is doing the same thing really fascinates me about this one. All right. So uh, page two sets it up. You know, the, the terms of this contest is that they need to start out evenly. And so we get this really funny uh, gag that Barks is going to return to, where Scrooge has to empty out his wallet, empty out his pockets, 
full of bills. And then the first little, the first little cheating effort. Becky, do you want to tell us that that first little moment? Well, so the at the very beginning, he asked Scrooge to empty out his wallet, and of course, empties out his pockets. And ten seconds later, we have just bills pouring out of his top hat there. Right, right, which he is conveniently neglected. Um, and then Ryan, this this next conversation cracks me up because this is a time warp, right? They have this conversation about the fastest <laughs> way to make money nowadays is to be a salesman. Yeah, um, <laughs> because that's surreal. <laughs> it, it is surreal, right? But you guys, did this make you think about, quote, the the old days when when someone from this vintage could have had a job as like a salesman um, or, or a shoe salesman job or a nuclear power plant inspector job um, <laughs> or, or what have you. A, a, one, a one income person could have, you know, bought a house at this point realistically yeah. as a salesman. So we get this really funny panel uh, that sets up how desirable these jobs are, where there's there's a man like on bended knee sobbing and pleading um, a, a sales boss for one of these jobs. And they eventually run across a posting that a big recording company is hiring salesmen over at 1616 16th Street. And so they head over to, to try to get the job. So what do you think? I mean, other than that, it's funny to have the the number repeat all the time. Is that a reference to something? I think Barks just just finds that kind of um, construction funny, and he seems to especially like the number sixteen. He thinks it's a comedic number. I've, I've seen it come up in a few of these. So it's just inherently funny, like a hard K sound. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It, it's 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 just it should have been on in Cucamonga, but um, but yeah. All you know right. what I find funny about this is you know looking at the length of this comic and you know remembering it from when i read it what stands out in my mind is this great adventure and as i was reading it i was like there's a significant portion of this story that is just them trying to get a job and having the door slammed in their face it's it's kind of disproportionate yeah that that's like a repeated um a repeated theme of my revisiting these where i'm like wow in in forbidden valley the part where they're in a valley full of dinosaurs they're they're really in it for only about like six pages of the 26th story and and the rest of it is this like argument with this this pickle baron over over this weird slapstick thing <laughs> It, it, it's kind of a testament to how memorable some of those aspects of the stories are so so as you say, Becky, this this whole next sequence is going to be about them competing for these salesman jobs. Um, I won't cover every beat of this, but I, it's funny, right? They get they get into these long lines, so they try to use their outwit people. You know, Scrooge pretends to be a window washer uh, and and gets a ladder to to go past the line, but but he's going to encounter a bunch of other fake window washers ahead of him it's really just meant to hammer home that what donald was saying how there are too many smart cookies nowadays you know it made me laugh that terminology of smart cookies because you know when i was reading that i was sort of expecting sort of this battle of wits to get to these jobs and you know once again the the smart cookies the, the being smart is actually just cheating all of it is just <laughs> different ways of cheating to be first just lying. In line. <laughs> right 
Right. It's it's all these low-level flim-flams, right? Yeah, and, and I guess, you know, it's worth noting that the ultimate victory is going to be kind of a, a that, a low-level flim-flam um, committed in a, in a different in a different land. But that's that's to process when we get there. I yeah, do want to point out the last one, because uh, we see Scrooge do a couple, and then we see Donald try, try to do one. He gets thrown out, maybe out of a window. Uh-huh. And he says, I pretended I was a policeman trying to give the hiring agent a parking ticket, which like, I read that and I'm like, how does that even work? How do you get from there to I'm being given a job as a salesman? Right. Because this guy thinks I'm a real police officer. Right. And it's just they've gotten so outlandish that it's not even useful anymore. Well, and I can't it's... help but but flash back to the previous story where he did this thing and it worked for Donald. You know, he okay. like he balled up some some papers as a bundle and pretended them to de- pretended to deliver them to the sales boss and pushed his way back and 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 in this one it doesn't work. Oh, it just reminds me, you know, it, 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 you know, 2020 jokes on the internet of millennials trying to get jobs and it's again that same okay boomer juxtaposition of that frustration when our parents say, "Why don't you just call up the call up HR and see if they're hiring?" and we're like, "That's that's not how this works, you know." Right. I guess everything old is new again. Right. Yeah, the way the way that people get these jobs changes and and again, the idea of a salesman job being this cushy number, it's its hilarious. So Barks transitions us with a narrator box saying, hours later, Uncle Scrooge and Donald reach the charmed door. Uh, and it turns out there's only one selling job left, uh, which Scrooge is, of course, eager for. But, but first, first, he has to pass a test. Ryan, do you want, do you want to tell us about the test? Uh, yes, the test is, uh, he sa- he points to his, what looks to me like something like a boombox and says, do you know what that is, sir? And Scrooge says, no. And the guy says, you flunked the test. Send the next guy in. It's, it's a great little transition. It's, it's very intriguing. You guys, I have so many thoughts that I should probably limit myself about the, the hi-fi. Becky, did this feel like still a semi-futuristic device to you when you read this or did this seem antiquated when you were reading it in 80 whatever you know it seemed absolutely sort of cutting edge to me and you know this uh, this little piece of technology here and the funny thing is even reading it today it still kind of feels that way you know and obviously not everything ages well and, and the specific technology is is kind of of the past but it really felt super relatable to me this idea that that you know Scrooge had no idea what this thing was and Donald knew everything about it and right. you know there's some merit there right uh, uh, as far as high tech goes I noticed uh, that uh, a little you know not to jump ahead but mm-hmm. they are being sold to people for use just in the wild jungle and so it either doesn't need to be plugged in and can generate its own power from something or it runs off of 10 d batteries that are already included (laughs) and it'll run for the next 30 minutes and then it'll be dead forever (laughs) right yeah you bet you better be pretty far down you identified a plot hole here (laughs) (laughs) um yeah, but I'm fascinated because because I I felt like this must be a real thing, but it just seems to be like an amalgam of what Carl Barks understood to be the latest audio technology. These these hi-fi players because they seem to play reel-to-reel tapes, 
right? Not not cassettes, not records, but um, but yeah, Donald Donald passes the test by identifying it as a quote midget hi-fi tape record recorder. Um, you know, he's using the word midget to mean small. That's the last time I'll use it uh, here because that, that was just common usage, but, um, but we, of course, wouldn't use that today. Um, and, and so that's the entirety of the test. The, the man spins an old globe with a lot of thumbtacks on it and identifies the only spot in the world where they don't have a salesman. Um, but we, crucially, we don't know where that is. Uh, because Donald cuts him off to talk about, you know, the race that they're in. I think one of the things that made me laugh a little bit about this was that, you know, after all their hijinks, the way they finally got in was being at the end of the line. <laughs> right. Yeah. And if they'd both gotten into the line, they would have both made it fair and square. Because <laughs> the line had like grown a half block by the time they got in. Boy, this next part's pretty funny. It feels very dated, but also it, it's it's amusing to me. Uh, Donald is celebrating as as he he tells Scrooge, if you want to watch him make money like a mint, you'll need to follow him to Indochina. Um, Becky, what, what do you know about the term Indochina? You know, not a whole heck of a lot. I know it's sort of an antiquated term and I sort of associate it with, you know, colonial days. Um, obviously, Indochina is not a country. Uh, I think it's a sort of a generic term for those countries in Southeast Asia. So if I was trying to pinpoint where they're at, you see a little Cambodia, so Laos, a little Thailand, maybe some, uh, you know, Vietnam or Malaysia sprinkled in, but it's got to be somewhere right in that that vicinity. Right. Yeah, I think you've got it exactly right. It's just the out the the uh, non not in use anymore term for all of Southeast Asia. So I, I kind of picture this being like on the Cambo Cambodia, Thailand, or were the two countries that I pictured, especially with the name of the lost city. Um, and, and now we get the demonstration of what the what the device itself is. Um, and, and this is meant to, to show Scrooge as being out of touch, right? Because we get we get one of the oldest jokes one of the oldest music jokes ever, one of the most okay boomer jokes ever. When Donald starts to play for him, Scrooge says, odd static, when does the music start? Um, I love, Ryan, the uh, the transliteration, the onomatopoeia that Barks uses here for, for the, the music that he's going to play. The boom-ba-bum-ba-bongo-bump? Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and, and so Donald protests, that is music. You're listening to Shoeless Pashley, the king of the bongo drums. What, what do you guys think? Any big Shoeless Pashley fans here? <laughs> oh my gosh, Shoeless Pashley was like a character in my childhood. I don't know what it was <laughs> about this like hypothetical Shoeless Pashley, king of the bongo drums, but uh, he loomed large in my imagination. That's great. That's awesome. I kind of had the same experience where every once in a while I would get part of his song stuck in my head, despite having never, never actually heard it, having only read it. It feels so funny to me and quaint that in 1957, just as rock and roll is really like starting to take yeah. off, that Barks honed in on the latest fad, that enduring pop music craze that was Calypso. In in fairness, you know, I looked it up one year before we had, in 1956, we had the release of um, Harry Belafonte's giant smash hit album, Calypso, with the, oh, wow. the song that everyone knows, Deo, Banana Boat. 
Um, so, so this must have been just his appreciation of it, but I don't really know where the bongo stuff comes in. <laughs> I used uh, to refer to this comic, uh, not as City of the Golden Roofs, because, you know, that would be too, uh, too direct. I used to call this comic Bongo Bongo Bop. Oh, that's amazing. That's wonderful. I, I'm so glad we had you on for this one that you had such a like great vivid childhood recollection of. Uh, I, I've been thinking about why why the bongo music uh-huh. in the place of the pop, and I've been trying to think of kind of what the what he would have had in mind and like what his angle is. But it does need to be dance music. We see later in the plot it can't it can't just be you know rock and electric guitar right. or whatever. It's got to be something that that makes your hips shake when you're when you're supposed to be stationary the the other one that comes to mind is um miriam makeba and i know pata pata was a few years later but that same kind of thing that was a contemporary of harry belafonte um that was i think a mid-60s dance craze that uh was uh south african inspired so maybe there was some commonality there and i'm not familiar with that that artist she is she was a contemporary of harry belafonte i think they even um they even collaborated on some musical endeavors. I think she's more known for, for the early 60s, but she's a South African artist. Neat. And she started a dance craze called Pata Pata. And, uh, you know, I think there was a little bit of that uh, influence maybe in, in maybe that's part of what, partly where the bongo comes in. But I'm just speculating here. Sure. I mean, some of it's just kind of that, I think, mishmash of it's it's meant to be a little bit exotic. All right. I so really wanted guys- to hear it, though. Oh, I know. Yeah. Someone, someone needs to do a do a shoeless Pashley cover uh, or or creation. So I I really find this top panel, this uh, full splash on the next page, kind of poignant, right? Because Scrooge is experiencing some ageism here. He's feeling very over the hill. A guy tells him, go apply for a pension. Um, another silhouetted person says, you aren't hep, old schmaltz. And then very, in, in a very contemporary seeming moment, we have a robot tell him that machines do all our selling. Any thoughts, you guys? Have you guys, I don't know if you guys are fans of the old Twilight Zone, but I think that there was uh, some, <laughs> a couple of episodes that were like literally on point with this. Yeah. Oh yeah. Those were great. Uh, I read this with an actual kid and uh, this, this gag was the the one laugh out loud moment from the kid. I got a kid laugh out of the robot telling him that machines do all our selling. That's awesome. That's great. Did, did he like this one? Uh, It was she. And I think, I think she did, but it's not the first one we've read together, but uh, I didn't, read as much enjoyment off of her as as i've gotten from other issues i think yeah i abandoned my ask a kid segment in the podcast just because it became such a hard coordinating thing um but i i do love reading these with my own kids and uh i've never read this one so but but yeah that this is a funny little bit and and so scrooge is pretty shook and he is gonna resort to as you mentioned becky some some outright cheating. Do you want to summarize that part, Becky? Yeah. So um, when Scrooge gets denied, you, you feel this moment momentarily. You feel bad for him because it is it it is pretty clearly ageism. And so um, he goes into the office and then basically pulls the the classic. Do you know who I am? <laughs> you know the the I shouldn't say the irony of it, but the 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 key point is. 
he doesn't actually need any money. Just the fact that he has money is enough here. This threat that I can buy you and your whole business and he gets the job. But of, of course, I think as we will, I'm sure, discuss, the fact that it is so outlandish and he's completely unqualified means that he never asked the the requisite question of what <laughs> is this job in the first place? Right. And and he demands, he has no idea what he's selling, but he demands to also go to Indochina to settle his score. Um, and even this I, guy I found... is even this guy is ageist. He has a sign next to him that says, Traveling salesman wanted must be young and hardy. <laughs> yeah. And as Scrooge walks in, he says, Just who do you think you are, grandpa? Just everybody in Duckburg is completely rude to everybody over 35. <laughs> right, right. He's very efficiently hammering this theme home for for yes. his young readers. Yeah. Um. I've I find the hiring manager's reaction to be to be quite funny. And and then we've got. Oh, I was gonna say it just. You know, I have such mixed feelings about it because, you know, on the one hand, you you do feel bad for Scrooge being this old has-been and he's got to be young and hearty. But the flip side is, you know, if you go back to Donald getting the job over him, it's hard to see how Donald was not infinitely more qualified for that position. I mean, he had no idea what this thing was or what it was for or why he would sell it. And so you... I don't know. I don't think it was quite as as one sided as as just Uncle Scrooge is getting beat up on because he's old. Right. I yeah, I agree. There's there's a weird kind of conundrum underlying this one. The, the next sequence is is a quick little sequence to justify why the nephews are going to come along with them on this trip. They they have some real crocodile tears and they're they're worried that they'll get lost and and the, their uncles will need their help. Um, and it's it's our last little Scrooge is is not. Scrooge is cheating, beat as he as he reluctantly unscrews his cane to get the uh, the money for ticket fare for the nephews, and and then we pretty quickly transition to seven thousand sea miles later to Southeast Asia, where where all of the commentary is about how tropical and steaming hot it is. Uh, Becky, have you ever have you ever actually been to the area? Yes, I've been there a number of times, and suffice it to say, accurate. You know, um, where my mom is from, it's Singapore. It's about 40 miles north of the equator, so you're right there, and it is just, you know, hot and humid every single day. Um, I think their lowest recorded temperature in Singapore in in history is something like 67 degrees. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Wow, yeah. So I guess there there's some justification for all this commentary, um, but but we have a moment where where Scrooge seems very confident, and he he notes, you know, this is the tropics. It's not the best climate for selling fast dance music. A hot shot, uh, but it turns out that Scrooge has forgotten to ask what he's selling, and uh, we get we get a really quick reveal as he finds his bundle on the the receiving dock. Uh, Ryan, do you want to tell us what what Scrooge's, quote, sample case consists of? Um, It looks like it's probably 20 to 25 feet tall (laughs) under a a big, you know, sheet, an an incredibly huge sheet. And then he pulls it off for the reveal and it is a stove. It looks like, I mean, it looks to me like a regular wood-burning stove, except something that you could move into and put furniture in. You know, it's gigantic. Right. It's a stove the size of my apartment. <laughs> and and what is its stated purpose? Uh for heating airplane hangers in Greenland. 
that cracks me up. That very specific purpose that, that it's <laughs> it's sold as. Oh, the super colossal fire belcher for heating airplane hangers in in uh, in Greenland. I don't have too much to add that, but I do find it <laughs> just an absolutely fantastic image. Right, with thousands of pounds. Oh yeah, it, oh, yeah. it literally looks like the uh, symbol for pot belly sandwiches. Oh yeah, that's right. Um, you guys, the, in in the previous iteration of this story, Land of the Totem Poles, the mystery item doesn't get revealed until well into half of the story. That's a lot of the comedy of it. And it turns out that Donald has agreed to sell a steam calliope in the distant Pacific Northwest. Um, and and it's, it's interesting that he decided not to, to reveal it right away in this one, because that's a huge plot point in the original. Um, and and the, the nephews, by the way, have sold practical makeup in that one. So um, the, the ducks prepare to sail down the, the river, which is, which is called the Gung Ho. Any thoughts on the name of the river? Is it bad that I love it? I love it. I love it. Yeah. It, I mean, it sounds it sounds vaguely real, except but also in a, a cartoony way, like everything else in all these comics, you know. Right. It It is admittedly a very clever name. Um, it's just it's one of these like it, it's it's very funny to be gung ho is to be enthusiastic for something. Um, I don't even know where the term comes from, but I can um, I can only imagine it must be uh, that it's got to be the a stand in for the Mekong. Yeah, I think it's a stand-in for the Mekong. It kind of sounds like the the Huang Huang Hei in its kind of like rhythm, but um, but yeah. So so the ducks are gonna gonna venture down the river, and um, Scrooge is gonna come along because he's determined, as he says, that he's always been able to turn mistakes into big profits. And so they drift down the river looking for customers, and and finally they come across across a clearing and to a hut um do, would either of you be interested in summarizing this this sales sequence well <laughs> I, I love this this particularly uh, uh this particular um interaction with his um with their first customer um and you know to go back to this this is one that i i do remember acting out as a child on my living room floor um, whatever this dance that Donald does to Shoeless Pashley, I would actually try to do that. Uh-huh. I don't know how effective it was, but um, needless to say, um, Donald ends up speaking the universal language of his bongolicious music. Um, <laughs> he gingerly walks up to uh, this stoic native, uh, turns on his hi-fi, and starts doing the Shoeless Pashley dance. <laughs> Um, when, of course, he is met immediately in kind with a fellow Shoeless Pashley fan doing the same dance. Um, instant connection, and he makes his first sale. If only I could plop the music right here. If only someone had done a recording of this great song and the great dance. What, Ryan, what's your favorite uh, dance move in, in this sequence? <laughs> The uh, there's one there's one I think that Becky could do uh, where you you rest your whole body on your elbows uh, with your arms bent at 90 degrees. And so your palms are down and your elbows are down and the rest of your body is up in the air and you kick your legs all around like you're pedaling a bicycle. (laughs) I'm going to I'm going to put this out there and hopefully one of your listeners will take me up on this. I think the whole Wednesday dance trend on TikTok has gotten a little tired. 
I am going to, you know, <laughs> plant the seed that somebody out there needs to turn this into the latest TikTok trend. Um, mm. Somebody needs to make this happen. Challenge Absolutely. put out there. How I think, 19, could it? I think 1957 TikTok really failed us at the time right. uh, for not <laughs> making this a dance craze. I was going to say, how, how can a static dance image from 1957, um, <laughs> how could it fail to, to take off? You I also know, wanted to I also wanted to acknowledge uh, Uncle Scrooge's offer to this guy to um, buy the stove, carve carve holes in it to for doors and windows and just live in it and then purchase it for eighteen thousand dollars and uh, pay one cent down and a cent a month forever. Those are the favorite right. terms because yeah. with interest, it lasts approximately infinity years. <laughs> right, right. And, you know, it's it's not a bad deal either. You know, for me overthinking this, right, I was say, I was, the, the the lawyer in me is like, we need to think about the terms of what me, winning this competition means, because clearly, I mean, you're going to technically he might have sold more if he sells this thing at a loss. But that that just, you know, if we're going on based on profit here, you might stop Donald from selling anything. But if you're basically giving away an eighteen thousand dollar, you know, green Greenland hanger heater uh, for a penny a day that I mean, that's a loss there. Shouldn't shouldn't the terms of this deal mean that he ultimately is is still behind uh, Donald, who made no sales? Am I am I wrong here? Oh yeah, fully agree. There's some uh, th there's some baseline deal making that needs to go on here. They seem to have been very hasty about uh, approximately every step of this process. <laughs> <laughs> right. It, it definitely all works in the in the cartoon logic. You guys, this is a very funny sequence. I like I like this little dance number. Donald, of course, makes the sale. Um, I really like this this native character, even though it's it's very most of the depictions of the natives here are going to be pretty infantilizing. They're um, they're they're depicted with they use very pigeon, um, but they're not. I guess they're not as caricatured as they might have been. Is is maybe the kindest thing to say? Yeah, I mean this guy. I mean he's depicted as a pretty cool guy. You know, uh, and, and to contrast with Uncle Scrooge, who is still, you know, curmudgeonly and, and out of touch or whatever. Right. Uh, this guy, this guy is hep with the uh, with the current, you know, cultural trends and everything, even though he lives out in the jungle and seems like a nice guy. I think he's I think he's portrayed very positively. Yeah. I mean, I think that was sort of the funny thing about this is, again, it's it's actually maybe a little more generous to Donald here because he, he's out in the middle of, you know, Indochina. He sees this this sort of primitive looking hut, and uh, you know Donald does uh, sort of meets the you know rule number one of being a good salesman, which is never assume that your product is above the person you're trying to sell it to. So his first inclination is not to try and convince this guy that you know that 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 he can get this uh, this hi-fi. He immediately assumes that this guy wants it and starts playing it, and they have this random spontaneous connection. I don't know. I love it. I yeah. love that they're both on this level. Yeah, these are great points. It it really is a delightful sequence. Um, it it's it's uncomfortable to hear the like me not language, but but yeah. uh, and 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 he looks just very generic quote Siamese, but it is a very like sweet treatment of him that that assumes that they're operating on the same level in this regard and it also is really assuming something very true 
the the wide reach of um of culture american even even if this calypso is ostensibly not american but you know it has been americanized um and spread you know, far and wide to address the pigeon english too you know without without going too far to sort of defend uh defend the that language you know going back to my mom being singaporean there's um singapore is an english-speaking country you know, and that's, I think, a fact, especially when my mom came here um, in the 1970s, people weren't really aware of that. Um, one of the old jokes my grandfather used to tell is that, you know, when my cousin met the queen, she complimented him um, on, on how what good English he spoke. Um, of course, we all speak English. That's but um, Did he tell the queen that her English was also very good? <laughs> <laughs> if that had happened today, I could definitely see him doing that. Um, but, you know, they, they speak a dialect in Singapore called Singlish. I don't know if you guys have ever heard Singlish, but you can go on YouTube and, and yeah, they, they they like to dub over Disney movies with like Singlish dialogue. And it, it basically is Pigeon English, but it's not Pigeon English in that they don't understand English. That's just a dialect. And, you know, in a professional setting, most people can, in, you know, speak the Queen's English in a heartbeat, but it's part of the culture and, and part of the history that that, uh, you know, sort of this Singlish pidgin English dialect is is, you know, used in casual settings. I appreciate the the commentary as someone, you know, with roots in the area. Um, and it, it gives Sparks maybe a little more credit just because this is kind of the default pidgin that he's going to use for for any character that inexplicably speaks English, despite being, you know, in a remote lost city. But but yeah, it. I, I should be balanced about it, right? Because there, there's some stuff that hasn't aged well, but but he, there's some stuff that's fairly progressive or at least considerate of them as as real people. Um, so we we transition quickly to the next sales opportunity. Donald does something pretty clever, right? He he loudly plays his hi-fi from the boat to try and drum up more business, and uh, and it works. A a hunting party turns up that are all huge shoeless pashley fans ryan any any comments on this sequence here uh one of them is already wearing a shoeless pashley <laughs> t-shirt uh that should be pointed out that's just what the guy was wearing that day when he woke up he put on his shoeless, shoeless pashley shirt and imagine his delight when he is right. chopping coconuts or whatever he's doing and uh, hears his favorite music being played from the river yeah this dude is having the best day. He is. <laughs> I I love Scrooge's interaction where he desperately says, I've got a stove for sale here. Doesn't anybody want a stove? And the guy cranes his neck at it and asks, does it play Calypso? <laughs> it's it's great. Yeah, speaking of things that didn't age well, um, we can also... Skins. Tiger skins, uh, ivory, elephant ivory. Everything that feels a little uncomfortable is these, like these natives who just have all of this sitting around. <laughs> right, right. Also uncomfortable is is the like difference in value between these things. But but that's yeah. as old as as old as time. There's a a huge backbone of colonialism running through this story. Maybe just a hint, just a hint. Yeah. So um, they they proceed down the river. They really should have should have given it up at this point because they're not seeing anyone else. We get the idea that they're pretty deep into the wilderness here, um, and that Donald should just turn around while he's clearly one. 
But as they come to a part of the river, they encounter a boy dressed in some really interesting um, garb overlooking them. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not, you know, sort of well versed enough on, on what these articles of clothing are, but it does actually look somewhat um, true to, you know, the, the traditional uh, Southeast Asian garb. Um, I'm sure someone who's more familiar might note, note some of the nuances, but uh, um, the sort of sentry that's up on the rock, it it definitely reminds me of traditional, I guess Thai is what came to mind, traditional Thai outfits. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Go ahead, Ryan. It definitely looks ceremonial, I would say, mm-hmm. more than what someone would wear for work. <laughs> and, and it looks very like high class or, or noble yeah. in a way. I, I think you must be right, Becky. I didn't I didn't check on this, but to me it, it really um reeks of that, you know, Barks dipping into his beloved national geographics um and and basically transposing some some kind of outfits that he saw for this whole sequence. Same same with the architecture of, of the city that we're gonna encounter. So, you know, the ducks do see another opportunity where there's this boy wearing this rich looking clothing. There must be more. Um, Scrooge has noticed his 22 karat gold hat. Um, and and Donald plans to roll out the red carpet for the customers, but Scrooge is gonna just go after them himself. So both Donald and Scrooge race off um, unwisely into the jungle where they're where they're gonna get lost pretty quickly. N- now we transition to this city itself where, where the boy is coming to report that for the first time ever an outsider caught sight of him and that this this city of this hidden city of Tangor Wat, is in danger of being discovered by outsiders. Um, so this important looking man, you know, advises them to uh, all hide. Becky, it looks like you've dropped something interesting into the chat. You want to tell us about it? Yeah. So um, I asked my my good friend, Dr. Google here, what the, the gold <laughs> hat might be. And according to the ever reliable Wikipedia, it is called a Makuta. Um, it is known, um, it is used as a uh, sort of crown or headdress um, in uh, Southeast Asia. And I think they say Cambodia, Thailand, Java, Bali, Malaysia, Sri Lanka, Laos, and Myanmar. And they feature a tall pointed shape is made of gold or a substitute. And they are a symbol of kingship. Yeah. And and you that this link that you um, shared tells me that Barks has nailed it. Right. These are like pretty directly re- represented uh, and, and we're localizing it, I think, pretty well to Thailand, Cambodia. Um, but, but they're really beautiful. They're really cool looking. And he's done some really neat drawings of these. It's maybe not quite as detailed, but the, the shape of them seems just right. So it is it is pretty ceremonial. It seems like the only thing he got off is that everybody in this city is wearing them. <laughs> right. So they're they're all kings. Right. Yes. Despite the fact that there is clearly a very specific king. Um, All right. So while the natives of Tangor Wat, which it's not well disguised, this is obviously a play on on the um, the wonder of the world, you know, the the famous uh, ceremonial city of Angor Wat, which which is probably the most famous bit of architecture in Southeast Asia. Um, it's Cambodia, right? It is. It is. I've been lucky enough to visit a number of years ago, and 
you know, I think part of the um, mystique of Angkor Wat um, is that it was not known for many centuries. I think it was actually a relatively uh, recent um, discovery. I'm not sure exactly when. Yeah, because Um, it was like swallowed up by the jungles, right? Yes, yes. Uh, 1860, it looks like it was effectively rediscovered, they said. So, yeah, you know. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. I I would love to see it someday. Very cool. So the citizens of Angkor Wat, the citizens of Tangkor Wat are are (laughs) in hiding while the ducks are lost. And so Donald resorts to, um, again, he's got a great device for making sound. And to catch the nephew's attention, he's going to play it on full volume. It's funny, you guys, the nephews immediately recognize it as being a, quote, trouble song. Um, you know, which is a little bit of a stretch, but 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 it works. Car- it's some cartoon or comic book logic there. But uh, of course, it can be heard by the citizens of Tangor Wat. And um, Ryan, you were talking about how important this is. Why don't Why don't you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, yeah. So uh, everybody everybody has been carried away by the infectious beat, and uh, we see a, a baker patting patting her dough uh, to the rhythm of the <laughs> the bongity bongity. And, um, and, uh, over the next couple pages, you know, we, the people, the people come out and find the ducks, um, in the, in the jungle and, uh, start getting excited about the hi-fi and, um, uh, everybody's dancing. Yeah. It's, we also it's discovered those... that Scrooge, Scrooge speaks ancient Bengali. Right. <laughs> right. This is one of our little mishmash things, right? Because Bengali. Pretty, pretty far away. <laughs> right. Bengali is, is South Asian as opposed to Southeast Asian. And then there's going to be another weird reference from the king that kind of has that South Asian mismatch, mishmash. Um, so Becky, you've dropped another useful link in the chat. This is something that I had picked up on too. So so tell us about this little, or we'll, we'll wait a moment and you can tell us about this connection once we arrive at uh at the person in in question. Um, sure, and just a little bit of South uh, Southeast Asian history here. You know, as the much Bengali, as you want. Yeah, the, the Bengali link is obviously kind of a, a bit of a falls outside of that that general realm. Um, but one of the things that is, I think, accurate, Angkor Wat is somewhat famous in that you know today a lot of that area um, has has sort of. Um, moved towards other religions. So um, Malaysia now is is predominantly Muslim. Um, Thailand is is predominantly Buddhist. But um, Angkor Wat and um, famously Bali um, remains today um, still heavily influenced by um, Hindu traditions. So that is sort of it's never sort of directly spelled out here, but that some of that South Asian influence is actually I think geographically correct. That's really cool. That's something that I would not have caught without uh, without you sharing. So thank you for that, Becky. So the 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 ducks are able to make some great sales. At least the the ducks that are that are selling the the high fives. There's some trade lingo here. That I guess I've said enough about that. Um. So so eventually the ducks are gonna transition into the city itself to do their selling. And Scrooge gets animated by seeing the golden roofs of the title. We're, we're pretty far into this city, uh, pretty far into the story. And now we finally see the golden roofs. And he wants to trade one stove 
for one of the roofs. Um, <laughs> and, and the hi-fis are just generally causing a big commotion and a big disturbance, distracting the dancing girls in the Royal Dancing School. Um, and, and it's clearly the most interesting day that Tangor Watt has had in, in quite a while. I, I hate to be the one to bring this out. As beloved as this cartoon is, I think one of the things that you can't help but notice is this cartoon fails the Bechtel test pretty hard. <laughs> right. I don't think, I guess we have some some female characters. Yeah, exactly. Oh, right There's... there. Oh, is that a stove? She says it in the, in the uh, when she's still speaking, the ancient Bengali. Right. <laughs> Right. I'm going to go out on a limb and say, Becky, that there is probably, oh, you know what, there must be a couple of, um, there must be a couple of Grandma Duck stories where she talks to Daisy. Ooh, I don't know if it, it would possibly be about anything other than Donald, though. So that'll that'll be an interesting thing to pay attention for. Yes. And you know, I mean, maybe we'll go out on a limb that maybe babysitting features prominently on these uh, dialogues, but... Um, you know, I feel like, uh, the female roles here are not as robust as I might like. Right. It's not <laughs> what Barks was interested in. You know what? I just thought of one that, that passes the test and it's, it's one of my favorite 10 pagers. Have you ever read the chickadees story, um, where the woodchucks and the littlest chickadees are competing to build a bridge against each other? I do recall the, that one. The girl, the girl woodchucks are, of course, the littlest chickadees. I'm pretty confident that that one must pass the Bechdel test. So, all right. Why don't you tell us, Becky, about Scrooge's encounter as he sulks? Because you, you shared a link with us that's relevant here. Yes. So um, the uh, they're in this um, mysterious lost city of Tankor Wat. Um and we have, uh, I guess, no, what's what's the word for it, uh, for his sort of his chief administrator there who's overseeing these dancing girls. Right, his advisor or his... But uh, they're trying to get the... Um, the subjects to to focus on, um, on on their dancing for the king's pleasure. And of course, uh, he, he d d Scrooge decides to just wander around the palace. He helps himself. King's not in the throne room. And the king is taking his nap, which I think the royal advisor had, had uh, alluded to at some point there. And of course, the fact that all the guards are gone lets Scrooge just waltz in and sit and have, make himself comfortable on the throne. And all of the noise is disturbing um, the king's the king's nap there. I have to say, just based on the issues that I have read of this series and the number of times that Scrooge and Donald and the boys have narrowly avoided execution, public execution by some kind of royalty, right. I would be reluctant to walk into an, an active palace uh -huh. and seat myself on the throne. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty brazen, isn't it? But it, it definitely is in keeping with the um, colonialist themes of the story, whether that's like deliberate or, or just absorbing um absorbing the culture yeah it's it's pretty brazen and risky but i but this... liked it though i mean i like this idea that these are two very different people um scrooge the you know squintillionaire or whatever he is and this king of this uh sort of el dorado type city but on some level they're kind of the same deal yeah they speak um very familiarly to each other so anyway um becky <laughs> Becky, you, you dropped a link to the famous musical, The King and I, 
Um, did, did this king remind you of anyone? Yeah, there's some similarities there. Um, I was interested. I was curious when it came out. It looks like it was like it's 1956. So that can't be a, a complete coincidence there. No. Yeah, it, this is pretty clearly modeled on on Yul Brenner's um, portrayal of the king king of Siam from from that famous story. So I don't think there's too much more to say about that because it's not really too interested in his characterization, but but it definitely looks like him, the, the dog-nosed version of Yule Brenner. Um, <laughs> so the the king is horrified. Oh, I just looked, I was curious to see uh, how, how big of a box office smash it was. So I looked up what to see the top grossing film of 1956 was. It's actually The Ten Commandments, oh, uh, yeah. also starring Yule Brenner. <laughs> <laughs> He's um, all over. And, yeah, Around the World in 80 Days, something called Giant that I've never heard of, Seven mm-hmm. Wonders of the World that I've never heard of, and then King and I was fifth. Wait, G- Giant was, uh, wasn't that the one with... James um, Dean, right? Yeah, that was, that was no pun intended, a big movie too. Yeah. All right. So so Yule Brenner here is is basically flummoxed at the disappearance of his guards, you know, letting this little old Scottish duck sit on his throne. Um, and And I like that he says, it can probably be summed up in his dialogue, the shoeless one's drumming shakes the courtyard like thunderclaps what could be worse um so scrooge sees his shot here and he basically lures all of the happy um villagers into the palace so that the king can appreciate the music too um and and then he wrangles this further annoyance into opportunity he he offers to get the people out for quote quite a price um and at this point you know the nephews kind of come back into the story because he's got he's now got a big moving job for them which gives them the opportunity to pay him back for their tickets and so they they commandeer the royal elephants and all the ropes and pulleys they can find and uh they they tow that big stove into the courtyard um, with a bunch of wood. And it's a pretty cool panel, right? Scrooge astride the elephant, triumphantly saying, I made a sail. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They have a rig there with some like uh, timbers lashed together to, to carry the several ton <laughs> uh, house sized stove uh, just through the through the plaza there. Right. Yeah. And and basically, um, does do, do one of you want to tell us about Scrooge's idea here, how he's going to use the stove? Uh, so uh, he's he's lured all the obnoxious uh, Calypso fans into the into the palace uh, into one spot. And so now he's going to use the stove to heat the palace so hot that it um, becomes too uncomfortable and uh, right. all the all the people will leave right and and it starts to work pretty quickly right they um they have to leave and the palace is the king's once again as soon as it cools off of course um but unfortunately the royal treasury has been pilfered to buy hi-fis from Scrooge's noisy nephew so the king reluct regretfully cannot pay Scrooge but then, Becky, do you want to tell us about Scrooge's last bit of inspiration here? Yes. So he uh, he continues to heat it up, and uh, you know, as the he has a moment of of uh, desperation where he thinks he's lost, looks up and then and asks the boys to 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 crank it up. You know, this one goes to eleven here, um, <laughs> and the golden roofs start to melt for whatever reason. These golden roofs have, uh, you know traditional western style rain gutters here right 
um, <laughs> that go in straight into wooden rain barrels. And the gold <laughs> just starts pouring down these gutters into the rain barrels. So uh, Donald is is taking his victory lap and Scrooge shows up with what looks like a barrel, whacks it open with a mallet and reveals it to be a solid gold, just a, a completely filled with solid gold and a big barrel shaped uh, mass there. Yeah, it's a pretty striking image. Um, both ducks have clearly, you know, made made a, a fortune from their salesman job. So I guess in a way they both proved their point. But um, but you know, I guess the idea is that this solid block of gold makes Scrooge the winner. He clicks his heels up and says, "This old has been feels like doing a calypso." So he wants them to play one of the bongo tunes. It's it's a pretty funny, striking ending. If you don't really think too hard about how he is just <laughs> what's what's most important is that uh, these ducks have just stripped this civilization clean of all its resources. <laughs> OK, so I, I'm going to admit this. I, when I was a kid, I loved that image of him like breaking open the barrel and the big barrel full of gold. And I loved all of it because, yeah, this this, you know, that imagery of just making away like a bandits was, you know, pretty compelling when you're seven. Uh-huh. Reading this as an adult, I get to that end of ending where he clicks his heels and he wants to do the Calypso, which and I was like, where's the rest of it? I was literally like looking for the rest of this comic because in my adult brain, I'm like, okay, so where's the the, the point where like everything gets fixed and there's a nice moral and there's some fundamental fairness here? And it just <laughs> does not happen. No, for, for Barks, a lot of the the moral and the wrapping up is is Scrooge winning, Scrooge getting richer. Um, it's it's fascinating to read, right? It's it's why we read the Scrooge comics. He's the richest duck in the world. We like to see how he got rich, but but as you say, it it takes a different tone. Like you, when when I saw that unveiling, I mean, it, it felt like a kid opening a Christmas present, right? And and then there's shiny gold beneath. So so it it definitely cuts a little bit different. Um, what, what do you think, Ryan? You you didn't have like the benefit of having read this as a as a small child. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I knew Scrooge would win because that's how stories work. He has to win. Right. <laughs> so you know, when when Donald appears to have it easy, we have to we have to get the comeback at the end for the for the catharsis. So I mean, once he saw the roofs too, you knew he was getting those roofs somehow. Right. Somehow he's trading that stove for those roofs. Right, right. And how do you get a roof? I guess the only way is to melt the gold down. So what do we think about, you know, the overall victory and the overall contest? I mean, do, do we all pretty much agree that that Scrooge didn't win fair and square? Um, it is weird. I mean, you know, like one of them is selling something kind of fun and, and fairly affordable by a regular person. And the other one is selling something useless to anybody outside of Greenland that right. costs that costs three times as much as a house costs at this time. <laughs> and, and like, you know, does selling one of those make you a better salesman or, or does selling a thousand high fives? I don't know. Yeah. It, it's hard to say what the, yeah. what the measure is here. Going back to Becky's point of uh, right. what, what is our metric? <laughs> right. There's yeah, some feeling you... here too. Like, you know, it's not just the, he, my recollection on this one, I remember him sort of seizing on the opportunity to sell this to the king, right? But what I did not recall is this idea that he got all the people to come in so that the king would need it to get them back out again. Like, that's some, 
that's a pretty serious self-dealing here. I mean, he made his own opportunity, right. but, you know, not to quote Donald Trump here, but uh, does does that make him smart or does that mean something <laughs> else about his character here? There's some real subterfuge in this one. I'm not sure I would call this um, making it making it square, right? Smarter than the smarties, maybe, um, but but maybe not making it square, especially the subterfuge also involved in letting their roofs melt into a rain barrel. That rain barrel, by the way, total breeding ground for mosquitoes in the tropics. Oh, good point. Yeah. Um, So you guys, I I think we did a really nice job of of summarizing the story and we've we've already processed uh, most of it, but but we can kind of wrap it up by checking in if you guys have any any overall thoughts, you know, Becky, um, you've, you've already mentioned, but, but how do you think this holds up from your childhood appreciation of it? You know, the magic is still there. I think the, the, what I loved about reading this one, um, to go back to that dance when they're just bonding over this Calypso, like you feel that movement, you know, you can just feel the energy that everyone is, is really digging this Calypso. Um, and it's, uh, you know, the the artwork and the, the sort of exoticism, uh, but for lack of a better way, where it, 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 despite some of the problems that I think we've alluded to, it still has that same sort of magic of feeling like you're you're traveling and you're there. Right. Yeah, I, I agree. I think you said it really well. I have my I have my adult problems with it. They're they're very apparent. Um, but there's a lot of magic in this story. There's a lot that that I really like about it. I like it a lot better than the original version that he did, The Land of the Totem Poles, because, you know, even if the people in this are taken a bit advantage of, they're generally treated more respectfully. That The, the people in the Land of the Totem Poles, everyone is so unpleasant in that one that it just <laughs> it just really rubbed me the wrong way. So, so I like this one. I'm sure there's an element of this was probably probably in the first five to 10 Barks adventure stories that I ever read. So that I'm sure that that colors it a little bit for me. Um, what about you, Ryan? Any kind of overall thoughts on this one? Um, I I would rank this one fairly low among what I've read. It, you know, it's a fun journey to a new area, which is kind of one of the things I come to expect from the comics. But the adventure aspect, I feel like, is, is fairly low. Uh, you know, they travel to one new interest city in Southeast Asia and the stakes I think are really low compared to the other comics yeah. uh, where you know on, on the surface it's the the richest being on earth uh, trying to trying to make eighteen thousand dollars and if you dig a little deeper then you go well you know he's trying to show that he's still got it or whatever and right. that he's not that he hasn't slipped um and and that's you know that's something but you know there's never any danger I feel like there's a little less cleverness to like get out of there uh, get out of a pinch or whatever, which is one of the things that I like about most of them when they're out in the wilderness or or they're up against some some weird civilization or something, the, the Atlanteans or whatever. Right. Um, and so this this seemed, uh, you know, a little more like, I don't know, a sitcom setup or something like that that we're playing through. And and it had lots of, you know, it had a number of funny things in it and some creative, creative beats, but I don't think it stands up to some other big adventure ones. I think that's fair. You know, the, the clever turn, as you say, is, is really comes in when Scrooge kind of absconds with their gold because it is clever. It's just clever in an uncomfortable way. So I, I like to check in one of my, one of my bits Becky is to check in on the, the site 
index, which is like something that the Disney comics community uses um, to rate stories and just uh, look up information about them. So if you check in on index, the community seems to agree with Ryan. Um, this one gets a rating of 7.4 out of 10. So that's overall 336 out of all like 42,000 some Disney comics that are rated on that database. I've plucked out the Barks adventure stories specifically and, and I calculated that it is in the 69th percentile of all his adventure stories. So it's definitely in the lower half as far as the community sees it. I think that might be a little bit unfair. I'd probably call it like a mid-grade story in my book. Um, but again, I do enjoy it more than Land of the Totem Poles. So I don't believe that there's been any... He, didn't, he never did an oil painting. This was never used in DuckTales or anything like that. So, um, but... but overall, a fun story, an interesting, they're our first dive into Southeast Asia, I believe, in the Bark stories. You guys, any any closing thoughts before we wrap it up? No, I don't think so. This was super fun. I really enjoyed it. And um, I appreciate you having me join oh, you today. I'm so grateful. It was it was so fun, Becky, to hear your, um, your perspective as a longtime fan who's thought about some of the same things that I have and, and has fun processing these. Ryan, it's always interesting to hear what you have to say as like a comics fan who isn't familiar with these, although you're getting more so. Mm-hmm. I invite people to check us out. We've got uh, presence on the socials, Facebook and Instagram and um, check back next. Oh, you guys, I did. I didn't mention. Um, I do like to briefly note favorite panels. Does anyone have a favorite panel that we didn't really give any attention to that you'd like to mention? I, I think for my part, Becky, you, you mentioned that sequence with all the the crazy goofy dance moves i i'm really animated by the one ryan mentioned where the guy's like bicycle kicking on his elbows and then donald's peel that banana i i think that's really fun <laughs> i love that i love that so much and of course i love the the hidden city villagers just going nuts i love the one where the dancing girls suddenly go from these sort of statuesque beauties to just cutting loose yeah <laughs> Yeah, that's a fun one. How about you, Ryan? Anything anything that stood out to you? Um, out of out of what we haven't mentioned yet, um, well, yeah, I guess just the uh, I was thinking the very first frame where they're just on their piles of money. There's a wheelbarrow in the distance, <laughs> wheelbarrowing money around. But I mean, obviously, the best one would be the elephants uh, rolling in with the with the stove. That's really the the dramatic splash shot. Uh, yeah, that he really put a lot of care into. I think. Yeah, yeah, I agree. You can't go wrong with that one. Excellent. Well, well, thank you guys again, and and I was about to say that people should check us out next week we've got a it's a pretty special episode um we're covering one of the most famous remaining stories that i haven't yet which is the money well i'm very excited for that one Ooh. Um, yeah you you know that one becky i do yeah that's a great one so you guys i usually close it out by um re- reading the dialogue of the last panel but i did already read that out loud so instead maybe i'll I'll um, cover my favorite bit of lyrics from the the inimitable Shoeless Pashley. I really like Shoeless Pashley, King of the Bongo Drums, or maybe maybe it would be Boppity Bop, Boppity Bop. I don't know, but those are those I think are the best ways to go out on this one. <laughs> so thanks again, guys. Thank yeah. you. You guys have a fantastic day. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah.